right, hey everyone, good morning. Isn't Zach awesome? So, yeah. If, uh, if you want to serve in the tech booth, we can get Zach on microphone more often. Actually, challenge for you. Uh, so, good morning on this Palm Sunday. Now, uh, in, I grew up in Australia, in the tropical part of Australia, uh, where there are rainforests and waterfalls and crocodiles and beaches. And uh, there it truly was Palm Sunday. We could walk out just to the front of the church, grab some fallen palm fronds and bring them in. And people would, uh, at least in the 90s when we were relying on overhead fans and we didn't have air conditioning, we would like weave them into handheld fans. Um, and as a boy, um, I can't speak for all boys, but when I was growing up, I was always looking for that perfect, just that one stick that would make that perfect whoosh sound as you as you waved it around like a sword. And I discovered pretty quickly that if you, if you rip all the leaves off of a palm frond, you're just left with that like spine, like a fencing sword, it makes a really satisfying whooshing sound. Um, palm Sunday, um, officially actually it's called Passion Sunday. It's the beginning of our Passion Week. And in many places in the world, uh, at one point or another, it was actually called Branches Sunday, believe it or not, because if you don't have palm trees, uh, churches would just bring in branches from yew trees, or yew Sunday, maybe it would be called, um, or whatever trees they had. Um, would, you, uh, would you pray with me, and then we'll get this thing going. Heavenly Father, I thank you for allowing me the opportunity to speak your truths grace and, and love this morning to your people. And I ask, Lord, that you will use me, you will fill me, and that you will prevent me from saying anything stupid. In your name, I pray. Amen. All right. We've been learning about authentic selves and stuff and presenting our authentic self, and that's my authentic prayer. There you go. <laughs> Thanks. Passion Sunday, the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is one of the most remarkable days in the Christian calendar. Let's see if this works. It does. It was a day when followers of Jesus simultaneously couldn't have been more right and they couldn't have been more wrong either. It was a, an age of incredible political tension and factionalism when nobody was content with the status quo and everybody had their own ideas of what it would take to achieve peace and prosperity across the land. And no, I'm not talking about election week in Alberta. The Roman governor at the time of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was Pontius Pilate. As I throw these up, these are all coins that were actually minted and in circulation at the time of these different rulers. So that's a coin that uh, bears the seal of Pontius Pilate. The Roman governor at the time of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was Pontius Pilate, who was known for such excessive and brutal behavior that Tiberius Caesar actually had him deposed and exiled about three years after the crucifixion of Jesus. And the older generations at, alive at that time would have lived through five different Roman governors. And they would have also remembered the reigns of King Herod and his sons. At the time of King Herod's death, Jerusalem was filled with rioting that had to be put down by force. And by force, I'm not referring to tear gas and rubber bullets. 
pretty sure the streets ran red. When King Herod's son, Archelaus, became ruler, he was constantly interfering with priestly matters, and things got so bad that the Jews actually sent a delegation to Rome complaining about his misrule. And that was when Rome took away what little remaining autonomy the region had up to that point, replacing Herod Archelaus with the Roman governors who ruled throughout Jesus' lifetime. The older Jewish generations alive at the time of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem would also have remembered their parents talking about the emperors and rulers before Tiberius Caesar and the intrigues of Julius Caesar, Cassius, Brutus, Mark Antony, Octavian, and Cleopatra. When Octavian gained power after the assassination of Julius Caesar, he took on the name Caesar Augustus and made Herod king of the lands, which included Jerusalem. But there was a problem with that, because at the time that King Herod was named ruler, there was already a line of high priests who had been acting independently from Rome as political rulers of Jerusalem for several generations. Herod actually had to wage war against the city, taking it over, and he killed the ruling priests and their families when he reclaimed the city for Rome. And this was only 70 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem as the Messiah. So the people at that time would have lived through a lot of political upheaval and violent ruler after violent ruler. The priests who had been ruling in Jerusalem weren't the same as the Pharisees, but they did have a history with each other which left the Pharisees with their own long-held political grudges. At the time of Jesus' birth, Rome had, had ruled the region for about 200 years. But around 50 years into Rome's domination of the region, Jerusalem was liberated to a certain extent from Roman rule by an old Jewish priest and his family. Sorry, I missed the priest coins. By an old Jewish priest and his family uh, and his five sons. Uh, they assassinated the local Roman ruler and his family. Um, not a very priestly thing to do, but that's what they did and then formed an alliance with a group of religious warriors from the wilderness called the Hasidim. Over the following decades, the Hasidim and the Pharisees became one and the same um, by all academic standards, but their relationship with a line of ruling high priests who they had helped quickly turned bitter. Uh, because the Hasidim, militant predecessors of the Pharisees, were largely responsible for bringing a measure of independence to Jerusalem. But then they were forced to watch as the family of high priests ruled for about 100 years in a similar fashion to the Roman rulers who came before and after them, ignoring the laws of Moses, even to the point of massacring and crucifying their own people when their authority was called into question. The Pharisees themselves, it could be said, had thereby been birthed out of political unrest and religious disagreements with the reigning family of high priest kings. So at the time of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the Pharisees had a huge political chip on their shoulder. The citizens had lived through generations of rioting and violent oppression, and the Romans had lost all patience and tolerance for this city which refused time and again to embrace the Roman Empire. Understanding this political backdrop helps us to see how the Pharisees could be so stubborn, the Jewish peoples so discontent, and the Romans so brutally unforgiving, and how on all sides a militant mentality ruled supreme. 
enter Jesus, a religious authority from the line of David, but without ties to the Pharisees or to the line of priests who had enthroned themselves in Jerusalem in opposition to the Romans. Jesus, a man who had the type of charisma that captured the attentions and imaginations of crowds wherever he went, and who was clearly anointed by God with unparalleled spiritual power. Um, now, from this point on, this is about all I'm giving you for slides. So if you haven't already gotten your Bibles ready or your phone app or your pen and paper, um, and you would like to remember this, now is probably a great time to do it. If you don't care, um, just try not to snore too loud. All right. Or I'll call you out from the stage. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the ground, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is, the, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. You see, the Jewish people would have been taught from a very young age what to expect from the coming Messiah. When Jesus and his followers approached Jerusalem, the moment he indicated that he was going to ride into the city on a donkey, word would have spread like wildfire, and the adrenaline and patriotism of the Jewish people would have kicked into overdrive. It wouldn't be a stretch to think that if not for the armed soldiers occupying Jerusalem, many of those followers would have been waving more than just branches. Let's look at one of the clearest prophecies of the coming Messiah, which the people would have been well acquainted with, because Jesus was about to challenge the reigning authorities and assume his place as Messiah, King of the Jews. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now, I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your son, Zion, against your son's Greece and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine, and they will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day. 
as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. This was the context that surrounded Jesus' triumphal entry on the day that we now remember as Passion Sunday or Palm Sunday or Branches Sunday, depending where you're from. Only days earlier, Jesus and his disciples were approaching and passing through Jericho, the final city on their way to Jerusalem, when a couple of very important conversations took place. The first conversation happened as they approached Jericho with James and John, laborers whose temperaments had earned them the nickname Sons of Thunder. These were experienced fishermen accustomed to acting decisively, perhaps even impulsively, and who knew how to throw their weight around when push came to shove. They had known Jesus for a long time and had spent almost every day over the past few years with him. John, who liked to refer to himself as the beloved disciple, had an especially close friendship with Jesus. John and James, as well as Peter, were the inner circle of disciples who had seen Jesus transfigured and talking with Moses and Elijah. To give insight into their nature, when Jesus had first set out for Jerusalem and they were still in Samaria, we read in Luke chapter 9 that they went through a town that was unfriendly toward them. And when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? James and John, the sons of thunder, were passionate men who obviously felt empowered and emboldened by the authority they witnessed in their close friend Jesus. As they approached Jericho, after having traveled through Samaria, they knew that they were heading toward Jerusalem so that Jesus could establish his kingdom. So they asked Jesus for a favor. When Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Contrast this with what happens once they entered Jericho. They're just a day or two from Jerusalem now and everybody knows where Jesus is going. Crowds fill the street and where there are crowds, that's where the beggars and pickpockets are the most active. One particular beggar who is blind could be heard shouting over everybody, trying to get the attention of Jesus while people on all sides try to get him to be quiet. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and everyone knows he's not just going as a tourist. The people are in a political frenzy and this beggar is being a nuisance by repeatedly shouting, son of David, have mercy on me. Calling Jesus the son of David was a public acknowledgement of what most of the Jewish working class were probably saying at that time that Jesus, son of David, of the royal line of David, the people's king, was on his way to shake things up in the capital city. Given what was going on, even in spite of all the miracles that Jesus was known for doing, anyone in that crowd might understandably have assumed that this blind beggar in shouting out, have mercy on me, was just asking for money like he did every day. But as we see, that's not how the conversation unfolds. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. 
Here is a man who wants nothing more for himself in that moment than to see Jesus, the man who everybody was talking about. His context is that of a broken man who knows how dependent he is on the mercy of others. He didn't ask to be great or for political favor in the anticipated coming kingdom of Jesus. And he didn't ask for money or food as might have been expected of him. He simply wanted Jesus to open his eyes to a world he was unable to see on his own. It's no coincidence that these two conversations happen so closely together. At the height of Jesus' popularity, only days before he enters Jerusalem, surrounded by crowds of cheering supporters. What do you want me to do for you? How would you answer this question? How has your context shaped your answer? Knowing our context helps us to discern our perspective, which is important because it's the perspectives we hold which shape our desires, our motivations, and the choices we make. This is why racism is so dangerous. And this is why it's so important that we intentionally cultivate and guard how we view women. Too often, careless perspectives have led to desires, motivations, and choices that have destroyed lives. And this is why it's so important that we consciously consider how we relate to Jesus. When James and John asked to rule in the new kingdom, Jesus was gentle in his response to them because he knew that their perspective was limited to their context. He said to them, you don't know what you're asking. But when the other disciples found out about the request, they were livid because they shared a similar perspective to James and John and they were not about to be ruled over by the sons of thunder. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we look at what Jesus had to say about greatness, the reason his life and teaching were so revolutionary was because of how entirely different his perspective was from everyone around him. That day when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he was fully aware of the disconnect between what he was doing and what everybody else thought he was doing. Luke makes this clear in his account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. When he came near the place, where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. 
as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. I encourage you the next time that you take your personal quiet time to revisit the prophecy that we read from Zechariah and consider how our perspective on this side of the cross reveals what was hidden from the eyes of the people who Jesus was referring to. Look for the references to, um, to baptism in the river. Look for references to God's faithfulness to Job. Look for references uh, to, to the, the bowl that would catch the blood of the sacrificial lamb and be filled with, with that blood of the sacrificed lamb. What do you want Jesus to do for you? As you think of your answer, I encourage you to consider the blind man whose humble response was simply this. Rabbi, I want to see. In the very next verse, we read that immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Recognize your past and how it shaped you. But let Christ be your context. Let the perspectives that shape your desires come from having your eyes fixed firmly on Jesus, not on your mistakes. Christ has overcome them. Not the people who have hurt you. Christ has redeemed you. Not the money that you do or don't have because your inheritance is in Christ. Not the education that you do or don't have because you are qualified in Christ. And not the family that you do or don't have because Christ has invited you to join his family. Let Christ be your context. Let the perspective that shapes your desires come from having your eyes fixed firmly on Jesus. If you're not asking for more of Jesus, to see him more clearly, to experience him more closely, you're not asking for enough. And this isn't just a, a church thing. Like we, it's pretty serious that we're entering into election week and that there will be votes cast. Um, if you haven't prayed, pray. Pray before voting. Pray after voting. Pray for whoever the leader is. King Solomon is renowned for being one of the wealthiest and wisest people ever to walk the face of this planet. This privilege was gifted to him by God as the result of a conversation very similar to the ones that John, James, and the blind man had with Jesus. That night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered God, you have shown great kindness to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed, for you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? God said to Solomon, 
since this is your heart's desire and you have not asked for wealth, possessions, or honor, nor for the death of your enemies, and since you have not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I have made you king, therefore, wisdom and knowledge will be given to you, and I will also give you wealth, possessions, and honor, such as no king who is before you has ever had and none after you will ever have. Solomon answered God's question with a request for wisdom to lead God's people well. That was his heart's desire. But I think there was something better that Solomon could have asked for. We remember Solomon as healthy, wealthy, and wise. Exactly what most people would elevate as the pinnacle of human achievement. That's what James John, and if we're honest, most of us would probably instinctively call the way to greatness. But if we shift our perspective from earthly gain to the perspective that Jesus was living and teaching, it was Solomon's father, David, who received the greater blessing. Listen to what Jesus asked for. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon the rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. And now hear God's response. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great. Like the names of the greatest men on earth, I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David asked to dwell in the house of the Lord. And God said that he would personally establish that house for David a holy temple that would be torn down and rebuilt in just three days. David asked to be close to God, and God gave him Jesus. What is greatness to you? And why would you ask for anything less from the king of all creation when he asks you what you would like him to do for you? In a moment here, I'm going to ask the, the worship team to, to join me on stage. Um, and I want you to continue to consider that question. What do you want me to do for you? For Jesus, the way to greatness and the way of the cross are one and the same. Though he journeyed to the cross, 
for the salvation of all humanity, he didn't look to humanity to find encouragement along the way. His eyes were always on his father. In the quiet of a public garden, in the middle of the night, less than a week after his entry into Jerusalem, surrounded by feverishly excited crowds of people. Jesus made a uniquely personal request of his father, which gives us incredible insight into the desires of his heart, which shaped his entire ministry and life. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. What incredible humility there is in that statement, in that perspective. Yet not my will, but yours be done. This Friday, we'll be continuing to journey together along the way to greatness that Jesus walked. And we'll remember the cup that God willed for Jesus to drink, not for his own sake, but for ours. Nothing compares to a personal two-way relationship with the God who gave it all so that you may be made whole. Uh, now I've been praying that, as I've been preparing this message, I've been praying that for you and for me and for all of us here. Um, but I've also been praying it for, for everybody who would be coming on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And there are, um, there are two times in the year which are exceptionally easy times for us to invite our friends, neighbors, coworkers, even people we don't like, to church, if they have or have not ever gone to church. And that's Christmas and Easter. And so if you haven't already like, talked to somebody about coming to church, um, maybe just strike up a conversation. Ask them, hey, do you go to church on Easter? Have you ever thought about it? Why don't you join me? Um, because there's no easier time to invite somebody to church. And there's no, I think, more impactful message that they could be hearing than that of Easter Sunday. Good Friday is a little trickier. Uh, Good Friday is very much uh, geared at those who believe and understand the message of the cross. But visitors and uh, first-time attenders are more than welcome at that also. Would you stand and join me at this point? <laughs> 